Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today in the show, I'll be talking to Russell Roberts. Roberts holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago and is currently a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I first learned of Roberts through his most excellent podcast, Econ Talk, where he interviews authors, economists, and business leaders. He's been podcasting for over a decade, and during that time, he's recorded hundreds of episodes with great guests like Milton Friedman, Nassim Taleb, and Christopher Hitchens. In addition to this, Roberts has authored four books. His latest is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. Professor Roberts, welcome to The Politics Guys. Great to be with you. Uh, So I'd like to start by talking about your latest book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. The title really intrigued me, but I'd like to begin by asking you about the subtitle, which is An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. So why unexpected? Well, I think what most people think of when they think of Adam Smith is economics. They might think of the invisible hand. If they know a little bit about him, they might know he wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations, which sounds like it's about money, and it is somewhat about money. And I think most people think economics is about money, and I don't think that's totally true. It's not about money. Some of it is, but it's really about our choices. Economics is about the fact that we can't do everything we want that we face trade-offs, and that sometimes when we act together through markets and buyers and sellers trying to get the best deal, prices emerge and our economic life is possible. There's all kinds of interesting and fascinating things about economics that are more than just, say, the stock market. But I think when you ask most people, what is economics? They think, well, it's about interest rates or the stock market. So the fact that Adam Smith wrote a second book, not The Wealth of Nations, but this other book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is his picture of human nature and what gives us the deepest sources of satisfaction, that's unexpected to me and I think to most people. And that's why I called my book An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness because he has written he had written a book before The Wealth of Nations in 1759, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that dealt with things that most people don't think of as economics, uh, how we behave, when are we selfless, when are we self-interested, when do we help other people? Uh, what gives us happiness and so on? And so that's why I chose that word. So do you feel in a sense in some ways that Adam Smith is sort of a, a great, great grandfather of uh, the behavioral economics movement that's been so big in the last uh, 10 or 20 years? Well, it's funny. There, there's a sort of parody of economics, almost a straw man that says that economists see people as perfectly rational. And, of course, many economic models do assume that people know what prices are of various items. They know what their own self-interest is. They know what they care about. They never make mistakes. And at a certain level, there's a simplified version of economics that, that tells that story. But, of course, in the real world, we know those things don't hold 100 percent, sometimes not so much at all. So I think economists have known for a long time that people's uh, choices are imperfect, Uh, We notice that people get divorced. (laughs) We notice that people buy things that they return. So obviously people make mistakes. What the behavioral economics movement's about is trying to see if some of those mistakes are systematic. Smith, writing in the 18th century, didn't have any of the 
uh, simplicity of modern economic theory that treats people, say, as perfectly rational or knowing their own self-interest with perfect knowledge. He was a philosopher. Uh, there wasn't even anything called an economist at the time. He was a, what was at the time called a moral philosopher. He was interested in human behavior, and he was interested in human behavior related to what we buy and sell in our workforce, our workplace, and our work life, and our careers, and the, the way nations behave and their economies. And so in that sense, he became an economist. He was interested in what now we would call traditionally economics, but he was also interested in how we behave, and he certainly didn't think we were perfect or 100% rational. And his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, a lot of it is about our imperfections, uh, our emotions, uh, the way we can be irrational, we can make decisions that hurt ourselves, hurt us, that we regret, and in particular, we can deceive ourselves. And he was very interested in that, uh, as am I, and I think behavioral economists today are as well, in how is it that we fool ourselves and think that we are what we are not. And that was especially interesting to Smith, and uh, I think that's always going to be interesting. Now, I've heard sort of a response to the behavioral economics movement. Some have said, well, yes, that's true, but uh, when you kind of pull back and look at a macro level, a lot of these flaws, this irrationality sort of cancels out in the big picture. Is that that correct, or is that an oversimplified way of looking at things? Well, when you say is it correct, is that what some people say, or do I? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, no, do you actually, actually work? Yeah. Do you do you actually agree with that? Does that work? At, yeah, at I think to a large extent, th- there's a lot of truth to that in the following way. So, I might uh, fool myself into thinking that you have a great uh, that I have a great stock ability to pick stocks, right? Mm-hmm. I might think you know I'm really a wizard. I've looked at all the data, and <laughs> I can really make a lot of money. And I might miscalculate my uh, wins and losses because it hurts to count the losses and I love counting the wins. And I might fool myself that I know more than I actually do. Mm -hmm. But if I'm actually losing money uh, over and over again, I'm going to run out of money. (laughs) Mark's going to tell me, you know, you may think you're doing a good job, but your bank account's going down. Uh, Now, there are ways to fool myself even about that if I'm not, uh, my life's complicated enough. But I think what those of us who are a little skeptical about the importance of behavioral economics, and I am somewhat skeptical of it. Uh, I think often the behavioral econom- economists will take a particular individual situation. So they'll say, uh, and here's another example, you'll be in a lab doing an experiment. And you'll be given a set of choices, and it turns out in that situation, you don't always make the, the so-called rational choice. Mm-hmm. But when you're out in the world in a more familiar setting, you learn certain rules of thumb, you learn certain ways to interact with your decisions and your purchases that that help you avoid those kind of mistakes rather than in a lab where you're doing something one time. Right. So if you go to buy a car, you might be uh, fooled. You might go and negotiate poorly the first time you buy a car. But after a while, you come to realize from all kinds of sources, either the Internet that lets you look up prices, uh, conversations with friends, uh experiences you have buying and selling cars or watching friends buy and sell cars, you learn a whole bunch of things about the car market that help you purchase that car more thoughtfully the next time. So I think when, when people are skeptical about behavioral economics, they're, one of their main complaints that you're pointing out, I think is right, that a lot of decisions that take place in a market setting uh, are not as, as uh, say, quote, irrational as they might be in a laboratory in a one-time artificial environment. 
So I kind of pulling back to the from the subtitle to the title of the book uh, that obviously it makes a claim that Adam Smith can change your life. And so I, I'm wondering how exactly do you do you feel that the Adam Smith or I guess more specifically the theory of moral sentiments can potentially change a person's life? So uh, most self-help books um, don't have much to say. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the ways to live life well are pretty under, well understood, and I think all of us know most of the truths that lead to a good life. The hard part's actually doing those things, right? The hard part is remembering them. The hard part is when you come to the fork in the road making the right choice, and that's much harder. So you might know, for example, that money isn't everything. I think everybody would agree <laughs> with that. You might know that the deepest satisfactions we get in life come from our friends and family. You would probably also agree that uh, whoever uh, has the most toys uh, when you die is a really bad way to live your life. Sure. So these are cliches, but they're cliches because they're probably true. Uh, So we all know those. We all know that um, it's um, money to make us happy. And yet we often act as if it does. We'll take a job that pays more because we think that'll make us happy, even though the job itself might not be as satisfying. We'll stay late at the office and miss something that our kid is only going to do once. Uh, Whatever it is that night, we're going to miss it. Even if it's not a star of the school play, it might just be doing their math homework that night. Uh, We often have trouble saying no to money and power and fame. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you remind yourself of those lessons? And Smith, in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, gives you a different ways to think about those choices. And it's somewhat fascinating to me and ironic that the person that people think of as the founder of capitalism is, has written a book that says, you know, be careful because if you follow money, you'll lose your soul. Right. Uh, that's in some dimensions the essence of Smith's lesson in that book. He's really – he didn't write a self-help book in 1759. He wrote a book about human nature and uh, what makes us tick. But he often says in that book that what gives us true happiness is the respect of others, uh, the friendships that we have, the honor that we receive from the world and our associates and our colleagues – and uh, he says we're tempted to achieve honor and respect and uh, attention by pursuing fame, fortune, power. And he says not going to make you happy. Uh, it's going to make you unhappy. And so, you know, we all know that to some extent. We might not all agree with it 100 percent. But what Smith, for me, what Smith did is he tells you that lesson in a way that makes it maybe a little more likely that you'll remember it. He gives you some ideas about how to think about it. He reminds you that you're prone to fool yourself and uh, tell yourself that you're really doing this for the good of humanity or the good of your family when, in fact, you're doing it for yourself. Um, And so I think he, because he's such a beautiful writer and stylist, he writes with with humor and with eloquence and uh, give some great examples, I think he can help you keep those things in mind, maybe then a little more than you might if you didn't stop and think about them. And so I think that's the sense in which he can change your life. He also has a lot of insights 
into how we interact with each other in somewhat subtle ways. Just to take one, uh, he points out that uh, it's hard to rejoice in the happiness of your of success of your friends uh, <laughs> sometimes, and it's also hard to empathize with people's um, tragedies. And he talks about how we have a sort of circle of intimacy, a ring of friendship, and people in the inner circle will share a lot with them. But people in the outer circle, we won't be as as uh, intimate. We won't tell them things, some of our successes and failures. Uh, and so he has a lot of deep things to say about our give and take with each other, our interactions on a one-on-one level that I, that I think are timeless and really thought-provoking and remind you of what other people are thinking when you're talking and what you should be thinking when they're talking. So it's just, for me, it was a fascinating book. And so then I would guess your book would be, it would serve as a uh, sort of a 21st century introduction to Smith's thought. And ideally what I'm guessing you would hope is that your, your reader would go on from, from uh, how Adam Smith can change your life to actually taking a look at the theory of moral sentiments. Well, I actually hope they'll buy 15 or 20 copies of my <laughs> book and give them away to their closest friends. But, or even strangers on a sure. you know on a bus that'd be fine too. Um, seriously, yeah, I'd love for people to read Smith's original. I have a lot of quotes. In, in some sense, the book is my book is my favorite passages from his book. But it's funny anytime I pick up the original, I always realize, oh, I wonder what I should have quoted that. That's mm-hmm. great. Uh, so it's not his book. The reason I wrote my book is that his book's a little bit hard to read. He is a great stylist. He is a great writer, but the book itself is a little bit. Um, hard to get into if you don't know 18th century philosophical life and i did not and when i picked it up i thought oh my gosh i can't read this (laughs) so part of what i'm trying to do is to open that door open that window to smith's thought i've modernized some of his examples but there's lots of verbatim quotes from his book that i comment on to try to uh help the reader understand them to the extent that um as a 21st century reader we struggle with some of those uh 18th century uh language. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd like to move on from, from your book to talk a little bit about your podcast, which I, I've sure. been a listener for uh, a number of years and uh, uh, really love what you do and you have some amazing guests. Uh, in general, I characterize it as a conservative, libertarian take on economics, politics, and business. And I'm wondering if that's how you see it. And kind of related to that, would you say that you're a conservative, a libertarian, or maybe something else? So most people would see me as a, as you describe it, a conservative libertarian, maybe with a slash in between, or mm-hmm. you know, libertarian conservative. I like to call myself a classical liberal. Uh, the word liberal, which comes from the word for liberty and freedom, uh, to me is the essence of my worldview, which is I think people should be free to do what they want as long as it doesn't harm others, and they're free to do what they want in association with others. So it's not an uh, atomistic, lonely, individualistic philosophy. It's saying what we do with our wives should be voluntary as much as possible. Can't be 100%, not an anarchist. Uh, But I think people should be as free as possible to make their own choices, uh, work for who they want, work with who they want. So if I want to start a business, I should be able to do that. That's a huge part, of course, of, of of a free society. I'm also free to start a charity. I want to help other people. There are ways that we join together to help others. Uh, business is one of those ways. We make should make great products at good prices if we want to be uh, 
competitive with our with other with other products. But similarly, we should be able to be free to start activities that help other people in ways that are beside and different from the market, um, different from business. That maybe create a great school or a great way to help poor people or a great way to help people get skills for the workplace, help the elderly. So I don't see any difference between uh, the voluntary actions we do, whether for money, deep satisfaction, personal gain, personal reward, non-monetary, uh, deep, deep meaningfulness we get from life when we help other people in all the ways that we can. So to me, a classical liberal is somebody who says we should be free to start those organizations, whether they're for business or for, for helping others directly as a charity does. And we should also be free to buy what we want, work where we want, and make uh, contracts with whoever we want as long as they don't harm other people. That, to me, is the essence of classical liberalism. It's not anarchy. It's a small government uh, that leaves the maximum scope for us as individuals to work with each other to transform the world. So that is sometimes called conservative. Sometimes it's called libertarian. Uh, there's there's other things that come along with those words to me that are a little bit that aren't the words that I would add. So uh, sometimes I, that's really why I prefer classical liberal. Uh, it's a philosophy of personal responsibility uh, where I bear the costs and benefits of my own actions, uh, and government keeps a small role uh, to do the things it does best, which are protect me from um, danger, national defense, police, the courts to enforce contracts. Really not much beyond that. Um, so again, it's not a selfish philosophy because it can be. Uh, if, you're not a, if you're not a nice person, you just want to make do your own thing, I, I think you should be free to do so. I can force you to be nice, but I, I assume that many, many people in a world of liberty would work together to help others uh, beyond uh, just trying to make the most money. And I think we all know that, that that's the way we are as human beings. We don't just care about the material and the, and the physical. We also care about helping others. So that's that's sort of my philosophy in a nutshell. Um, you know, I'm very, as a listener, you know, I'm very open about my philosophy. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't pretend I'm unbiased. I have a lot of, of uh, deeply held views. And what I try to do in the show is to talk to people who agree with me and who disagree with me in a civil way so that we can learn from each other. So it is, in, in one sense, it's a conservative slash libertarian show and that the host has those views. But in other sense, it's not. I have lots of people on who are all across the political spectrum, including Marxists. Um, certainly I've had economists from the left side of the political spectrum. And uh, I try to learn something from them. And I want my listeners to learn about how my viewpoint interacts with that, with that guest. Similarly, uh, increasingly, I try when I have guests who agree with me to push back against their views so that we can learn something there as well. It's not just a chorus of, boy, you're smart, right. and yeah, I'm even sure. smarter. Because <laughs> I don't think you learn much from that. It's comforting. It's not the worst thing in the world. Um, yeah. Sometimes you need a little comfort that you're not alone uh, ideologically or philosophically. But my main goal in the program is to expose my listeners and myself to a wide range of ideas way beyond the narrowest scope of, say, economic theory. 
because I, I don't find it that interesting. <laughs> and I think economics is about a lot more than just uh, the sort of classroom economics that you might have been taught. Sure. Uh, you know, earlier you mentioned that sort of an uh, incomplete characterization of economics and that it's, it's about more than just money. It's about the choices we make and so forth. And so along those lines, do you feel like there are any common mischaracterizations of uh, conservatives, libertarians that you've come across uh, again and again? Well, Sure, uh, you know there there are um, there are certain stereotypes which are sometimes based in something of reality, but of course the world's a diverse place, and um, I find it unhelpful to uh, to label people. Uh, it's unhelpful to label myself again. To some extent, you have to. You have to give some flavor of what you think about. But if again, as you ask, if I said, oh, I'm a conservative economist, a lot of people would think, oh, he doesn't care about the poor. Right. Yeah. And that drives me crazy. Um, or I don't think the government should be in the business of education because I think they do a lousy job. Oh, then you must think, that you, well, what would, what would poor people do if there weren't government schools? Right. Well, I think there'd be schools for poor people just like there's – groceries and food for poor people and cars for poor people and the, those cars and those that food gets better and better every year and i think if we let competition work in the education market instead of uh imposing a mostly government monopoly i think the poor would get better schools than they do now so so, do you- so i don't I, I part of the reason you know when you can't ask me before what's your label one of the reasons i, I i'm uncomfortable with labels is that come they do come with baggage that I mean, another example is people here libertarian think, oh, you're, you like drugs. Right. <laughs> and, um, I've never, other than aspirin, <laughs> I've never taken any mind-altering uh, drugs, uh, although I have had a beer and a scotch um, now and then. <laughs> but I haven't taken any what traditionally are called drugs. But I do think they should be legal. Right. I don't think the government should be in charge of what I put in my body. And so uh, I think people often assume, well, that I'm a – libertine, not just a libertarian. I must want drugs to be free so I can get high all the time. And I don't feel that way. I don't want to get high. I don't want my children to get high. I prefer that they not. Once they're adults, they can make their own choices. But uh, I certainly don't. One of the things that drives me crazy is this view that we should make everything we disapprove of illegal. Because if it's legal, it means it's okay. There are many, many things that are legal that are not okay, like being mean (laughs) or, or rude. Or crude. I don't want laws against those things. I want social uh, norms to, to go against those things. And I think there's an assumption that we have to use the government all the time to, to fix things and, and make things a certain way. And I think that's just a terrible mistake. Do you think maybe that at least in part that misconception comes out of the fact that, at least it seems to me, that the liberal argument is much more straightforward in that, well, there are poor people, well, let's give them money. Uh, and whereas the conservative argument says, well, let's it seems to me not just give them money, but let's let the market do what it does. And over the long term, these people will be better off. Well, I'm willing to let I'm willing to give them money voluntarily. I give money to charity to help poor people even now in certain settings, even though the government takes a lot of my money and gives it to poor people already. Um, so I don't think that I don't, I don't just want the market to solve poverty. I think there are things that we should do to help people when they're struggling and through uh, bad luck or just um, whatever circumstances they can use some help. Um, I, I would point out that there are plenty of people who adopt 
conservative policies because they don't like poor people and don't want to pay taxes. I'm not one of those. I, again, I think we should – I don't want to pay taxes, but I do want to help poor people voluntarily. But I can see that there are people who are just selfish, don't want to help poor people in any way, or think that the help we would give them would be counterproductive. And um, they're my allies in the ideological or philosophical battle that we're in. And sometimes those allies are not people I'm so happy to be allied with, sure. right? Yeah. People who are, say, greedy or cruel or whatever. And that's the problem I think that the right has. And I think the left has a similar problem. A lot of people on the left want government involvement because they actually care deeply about making the world a better place and helping people who are unfortunate. And there are people on the left who want to get government to be larger because they want to control people's lives. <laughs> so there's sure. an unattractive motive uh, alongside an attractive motive, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum. And uh, that's just one more reason why labels, I think, are somewhat awkward, because uh, you have to really look and see what a person actually believes and what they favor. Uh, and a lot of times that label is going to not convey that very accurately. Right. I wonder to what extent maybe humility is an issue here. And I guess by that I mean uh, it seems to me that uh, a lot of liberals believe government should take action because if there's a problem, government can do something to solve it and they maybe don't consider uh, unintended consequences, whereas conservatives, at least traditional conservatives, and I sort of call myself a, a Burkean conservative to kind of reach way back, uh, tend to be uh, uncomfortable with large-scale social engineering, not because they don't want to help people, but because they feel that as smart as we may think we are, uh, the world is a very complex place, and for every action we take, there are going to be all sorts of unintended consequences. I mean, would you would, would you agree with that? Is that sort of part of your critique of big government? Yeah, I, I would certainly um, – that's a, they, one of the senses in which I'm a conservative uh, or could be described as a conservative. I certainly think um, there are a lot of institutions beyond government that, that society uh, consists of, and I – the phrase civil society is, I think, a powerful one. There's charities, there's religion, family, uh, all these things interact in complicated ways. And when we change the, um, what government does, we often affect those institutions in ways that we either don't intend or that uh, are just, as you say, just complicated. So uh, I think a wariness for uh, – Large steps is, is a good is a good is a good idea. Uh, revolutions often turn out badly yeah. uh, for that reason, right? Th their motivations are good. Uh, wars turn out that way sometimes. We you know we, we think we're going to depose uh, Saddam Hussein, and that's a good thing. I think that was a great thing. Sure, a bad man, but that set in motion a whole bunch of other complicated stuff that. It's not just that no one anticipated it. You'd be a fool to think you could anticipate it. It's not like they, it's not like they had the wrong anticipation. Uh, it's just that these are things that can't be anticipated because of the world's complexity. Right. Uh, so many things that uh, – so many interventions are like that. I mean I use a small example of it in my book, The Invisible Heart. I talk about how uh, we removed wolves from Yellowstone Park. Uh, in the early days of the park, early days, I think, of the 20th century. And wolves are a little scary to people. Um, you know, we have a certain mythology about wolves. So most people thought that was a good idea. There would be people visiting the park. You really don't want wolves there. And what that did is that allowed the wolf as a predator of the elk in the park and the 
with the loss of that predator, the elk population grew in a very unchecked way. And elk like to um, eat anything green they can find. And so one of the things they did as that herd in Yellowstone got bigger and bigger is they basically denuded the, the green, mm-hmm. a lot of the green um, growth around streams uh, at Yellowstone. So a lot of alder and willow and aspen that were growing around the streams were part of that ecosystem. They started to disappear because the elk ate them down to the ground. And then the beaver found that they couldn't uh, survive. So the beaver population, because they couldn't get the wood they need to build their dams and and to eat. I don't know what they eat. I have no idea what beaver eat, but they do need they need sticks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so uh, the beaver population started to decline. So if you said, what's going to happen to the beaver population if you get rid of wolves? You'd think, well, I don't know much about wolves, but they could eat beavers, right? So if you get rid of wolves, there'll be more beavers. Yeah. No, it's actually the opposite because yeah. of this complex, unintended, unexpected, crazy set of connections between things. They've now reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone in the last uh, couple of decades. The elk population's healthier. Um, you know, what the wolves tend to eat are the and, and kill are the older and uh, sicker uh, and some of the young so that the growth of the population isn't as large. And now the elk population is, a little, been, I think, a little more stable. And that means the streams are a little more green. Uh, and that's great. And the beaver are going to be more numerous. So yeah, that's just a simple little fable for, I think, often what happens with social engineering at the human level. We think oh, we're going to, I'm going to turn this one lever. And I don't see that this one lever is connected to like 4,000 gears behind the scenes. Sure. And I'm going to set in motion a whole bunch of other stuff I can't, I can't anticipate. Right. Now, of course, there are, though, some instances in which uh, government maybe doesn't have the, the opportunity or the luxury to not act, and some would argue, I guess, that that was the case with, with Iraq. I might take issue with that. But, or, for instance, uh, with the, uh, uh, the bank, the bank failure and the, the economic crisis where government acted to bail out the banks to save the financial system. Some would say, well, that's an instance where we couldn't really afford to just let the market take care of things that someone had to step in and essentially stabilize a very dangerous situation. Yeah, and that may be true in this case, um, unfortunately, and that I believe is partly because of what the government had done before. Yeah, yeah. To try to stabilize the system when maybe it wasn't so dangerous, but they claimed it was because banks are really important politically, and so they saved a lot of banks along the way, and that encouraged banks to be more reckless in the future until we finally get to a situation where um, it was really actually was a serious problem, which it probably was in 2008. So it's easy for me to grandstand and say, oh, they should, that was a mistake. I don't know if it was a mistake or not. I do know it was a mistake beforehand to set up that situation. And I think the government played a role in creating that problem. Buffett used a, a similar, um, it's another Yellowstone example. You know, in Yellowstone, every fire for a long time got put out. And so what that, which seems like, well, of course it was. Yeah. Well, when you want to put out a fire? But what that meant was if you put out every fire right away as soon as you can, it meant that a lot of undergrowth and underbrush that is very combustible uh, didn't get cleared out by smaller fires. And then when a, a, one day a fire came along uh, that was so large they couldn't put it out, and it had a devastating, uh, catastrophic impact on the environment. 
And I think that's what we've been doing in the United States over the last 30 years or so. We've been putting out every fire. Every time there's a bank that looks like it might go under, it might be dangerous. We've bailed out its creditors. And that has encouraged creditors to lend to people that are riskier and riskier until in 2008. They're lending to very risky things and it just blows up. And so, you know, any one situation, it's hard to say whether it was the right thing or not. But it certainly is the case, in, in my view, that the things we did before that made that uh, inevitable. You, kind of along those lines, I'm wondering, because that's something I, I think about a lot myself, and that it seems to me that politically it's very difficult to for, for Congress, for instance, to say, well, we promise we won't bail out large financial yeah. institutions, right? And, yeah. and so what's the alternative to that? Because it, it seems like that's a that's a – promise that even if Congress made it, that the, the, the markets really wouldn't take seriously. And you know, so they made, it, they made that promise a number of times. You know, the um, uh, there was a thing called uh, FIDESHA, which was uh, related to the FDIC, where the if a bank was poorly run and went bankrupt, um, the government would remove the officers of the bank and put it through a very specialized kind of bankruptcy procedure. And that was on the books. But when 2008 came, they decided it wasn't a good time to use that. It, this was special. It yeah. didn't, didn't apply. Uh, the government for years uh, said that Fannie and Freddie, the uh, buyers and issuers of mortgage uh, funds, uh, Fannie and Freddie are private enter- entities. They are not backed by the government. <laughs> Nothing in this, you know, they explicitly write nothing in this bill uh, should cause people to believe that if, that they're backed by the government. And yet people thought it were, that they were. And when they went got in trouble in 2008, they were bailed out. Right, right. <laughs> so so you're exactly right. And so it's not just that, well, you know, people had a feeling. They actually said explicitly uh, in different times uh, that we're not going to bail out folks. And yet they did anyway. So the only way, solution to this, in my view, is that for everyday people to be so disgusted by it, which we are to some extent now, uh, that the next politician that does that will have no future. Right. And I think we're moving in that direction a little bit, not enough for my taste, but really that's the only thing that would make a difference. Um, banks give a lot of money to politicians, and the only thing that will stop politicians from being nice to them is if we, as voters, decide that um, – Politicians who are nice to banks don't get to get our vote again. Right. Well, you know, it, it seems to me that there are essentially three approaches that people have suggested. There's the Bernie Sanders approach, which is essentially break up the big institutions. Right. So, but there are a couple other approaches that maybe are a little less radical. One of them is something that's actually being done and was done in Dodd Frank is to uh, raise capital requirements, make sure that the financial institutions have more money held back. And a second and related approach would be to uh, regulate lending practices so they can't make as many risky bets. What do you what do you think about those those options well they're all flawed they're all imperfect and one argument is that that's what we're stuck with um if you make me choose between the three you know the problem is any one of them has such high costs so breaking up the banks i'm not sure what that phrase actually means right does it mean if you get above a certain objective dollar value, you're then what? Split in two, your building has to be sold off. Right. I don't know. Right. So it's not clear how that's going to be implemented. Uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders has been very explicit about it. Uh, in fact, when asked, I don't think he's very explicit about it. Yeah. 
But but there is an argument to be made that if you're going to bail out banks when they lose money, they should be run like utilities. Right. They should be run as government organizations. I think that's an awful solution, but it, it's better than what we have now, which is uh, they get to make a lot of money when times are good and when times are bad. They they could take our money. Yeah. That's really the worst, uh, which is no one would say that's our world, but I think that is effectively our world. Yeah. So as, as horrified I am as as I am by the idea of quote breaking up the banks, I think that's better than the world where the banks the banks break up us. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two solutions you know, have their own problems. There there are some things that are attractive about them. If uh, high capital requirements are a very good idea, that makes the banks much more stable and much much less uh, liable to be uh, to get in trouble. The problem is is that um, historically banks find ways to get around those. Yeah. They put political pressure on the regulators to soften the requirements. You know, it's just they find uh, riskier. Um, they create riskier um, assets. Um, and then, do we really want to have rules on lending? Do we really want to watch and create this enormous monitoring system, which is what we have? I think Don Frank does, which is very expensive. And um, again, it, all these things are are really fake. Capitalism, right? There are ways of of um, making capitalism less like it should be, and what the way it should be is a profit and loss system. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get the profits, and you get the losses. That's called capitalism. And the profits encourage you to take risks, and the losses encourage you to be prudent about those risks. Uh, if you take away the losses, you get imprudent risk risk taking, which is, I think, what Wall Street has now. That's very bad. Uh, but I, I'm hopeful we could find uh, – well, not hopeful, but I like the idea at least of returning to a world of real profit and loss rather than having to try to figure out some clever way to keep an eye on the banks. Yeah. Uh, I'd like them to keep an eye on themselves, which doesn't mean – people say, oh, do you think the banks are going to regulate themselves? Right. Uh, no, that's not what it means. It means that when they make bad – here's what self-regulation means. It means when you make – and it's true for individuals. So it's, when you make bad choices, you're on your own. <laughs> right. You lose your money. Um you know, the venture capital world is a profit and loss system. The venture capital world, you try to find uh, a unicorn, a new company that will eventually be worth a billion dollars. If you do that, you're going to become fabulously wealthy. And if you invest in 10 companies, you might find one that would, that would be amazing or 100 before you find one that does that. And most people aren't going to find one. They're going to just lose all their money or make a small return or make a disappointing return. But whatever that return is, that's theirs. And I love that. And the result is a lot of innovative, fabulous companies, some of which make it, some of who don't. And I don't worry about whether a venture capital fund or a hedge fund in that world is taking on too much risk. Right. That's their problem, not mine. Like when people say, oh, I don't know if Amazon's going to make it. No, they're selling me a lot of books at a low price and I'm enjoying it. And I'm yeah. very grateful to the people who invested in them and back their uh, their company because I'm that's – that's not, they're not my problem. They might lose all their money. I don't have to worry about it. But somehow we've created a world where Wall Street, uh, I do have to worry about it. And that's just a terrible situation for capitalism and for democracy. So then that's not actually capitalism as it's sort of intended to work. And it, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me, in fact, that a lot of folks who seem to be the uh, – would call themselves the high profits of capitalism in, in business, they're not interested in capitalism at all. They would like monopolistic situations yep. where they have uh, unlimited uh, you know, gains and no losses essentially. Yeah, well, it's like uh, – like Milton Friedman used to say, every, 
Biz, people in business like capitalism, but just not in their industry. Yeah, exactly. Their industry is special. They, 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 competition's good elsewhere, but in my industry, it's a special case. We, you know, I need protection or I need, I need something special. And um, capital is good for other people, just not for me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I, most people, it's a myth. I, I think most people think business people are capitalists. They're not. Yeah. They're. Um, they're very uh, lukewarm about the whole enterprise. I'd much rather, as you say, get a nice monopoly going and uh, sit back and watch the money come in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd like to turn a little bit from uh, from this to talk uh, talk about trade for a little bit because in it seems like in recent years, what we might call the elite conventional wisdom on free trade, sort of that it ends up benefiting everyone in the long run, has been called into question. And I think not just by Bernie Sanders on the left, but also by Donald Trump on the right. And also, though, it seems to me that there's some research that's emerged that suggested that, well, maybe it's been harder than expected for at least some workers to bounce back after they've lost their jobs to overseas competition. So I'm wondering, would you say that the benefits of free trade have been oversold? Uh, I, I think they have been by the cheerleaders, just like the costs of free trade have been, have been oversold by the people who are against it. Um, trade's complicated. It um, it's good for consumers and good for some producers and bad for some producers. So, you know, if I'm making American cars and we let Japanese cars come into America and they're very innovative, we're going to have uh, lower profits in the automobile industry, and there are probably going to be fewer workers in the automobile industry, lower prices and for cars that American car companies can charge, and um, that's great for American car buyers. And American car buyers, by being able to buy less expensive Japanese cars of higher quality, are going to have more money left over to spend on other products that are going to come along that people can use to uh, that they don't have to now make for themselves. And that's the way the world works mostly. Uh, but you do have – and that's good. Uh, so you get creative destruction. You get competition coming in from a foreign pr- producer – which makes it harder for the domestic producer to charge the same price. So they have to compete and lower their price and oftentimes come up with higher quality. That's great for all, most of the people in the country. But if you make the product, it's not so great. But the good news is, oh, but some new products are going to come along that you can work on. They're going to let you uh, that aren't here now. So, you know, my favorite example, this is agriculture. In 1900, 40% of the Americans worked on the farm. We didn't have free trade in agriculture that made a difference. We had productivity, which is almost exactly the same thing. We found ways to get a lot more food with a lot fewer people, so there's a lot less need to have workers in the agricultural sector, which is the same thing that trade does. And everybody got cheaper food. That was fantastic. But what about all the people who used to work on the farm? Well, new businesses were able to start now because we didn't have to spend so much so many resources, so much capital, and so many people making food. We could free those up to make something else, and they, those things got made. Right. The problem is is that not every uh, automobile worker can be a job a programmer, right? right? The, sometimes the skill set of the workers that the new products uh, are going to use are not the same skill set as the workers who used to be there. And this has been a problem, I think, to some extent in the United States over the last 25 years because our manufacturing sector has shrunk. Manufacturing outputs through the roof. We actually are not being uh, hollowed out. Our manufacturing sector is incredibly productive. It produces a lot more stuff than it used to, but it just doesn't need as many people to produce it as it did once as it did in the past. And the people who used to have those jobs are f- struggling to find jobs that pay as well. 
Right. And that is the research you're referring to, I think, and I think that's 100% right. And it's the reality. And I think it's a mistake and a lie to say, oh, free trade's great. Everybody's going to get a new job and make more money and have cheap stuff. And we're going to have more jobs. And that's not true. We're going to have roughly the same number of jobs. They're going to be more productive. But the transition from this world to the one with more trade is going to get complicated by the fact that sometimes it's hard to find that job, hard for people to figure out what businesses can get started that use the people who now don't have work. And so uh, the question is, how do you, what do you deal, how do you deal with that? One answer is, well, let's keep out those farm products. My answer is let's give people better education. Let's, and this is my same answer to the immigration question. It's true. Immigrants compete with Americans who are already here. So that's, that's hard on those folks. It's good for the rest of us who, who don't compete as closely with immigrants because we get the skills and products that the immigrants produce, and that makes the world a better place. Their lives are improved because they make a lot more money than they did in their home country. And they sometimes go from desperate poverty to a decent life, and certainly their children do. And people say, well, what about the Americans who have to compete with them and whose, whose wages go down? Well, they go down a little bit, not a lot. Even the critics of immigration can see they don't go down a lot, but that's hard. So let's fix that. Let's fix that by giving them more skills and a better education system instead of saying, well, let's keep out foreigners. Right. I just think that's the wrong way to solve the problem. Now, do you get to a point, though, of diminishing returns in education? One of the arguments, for instance, that uh, Tyler Cohen in, in uh, his book, uh, The Great Stagnation, mentioned, he said one of the reasons for such great economic growth in the United States in most of the 20th century is that we were able to get this low-hanging fruit, as he called it, and a big part of that was a, a vast, undereducated workforce. And once you get to a certain point, it becomes harder and harder to up the level of education to, to meet the needs of, of the market. And so are we are we at that point where it's going to be harder and harder to recognize those gains? I don't know. You know, I think it might be. I don't think we really understand it very well. Um, you know, we're, we're talking on uh, Friday, June 3rd, and the May job numbers just came out. They were really disappointing and crummy. Only 38,000 jobs were created last month. Is that because we have a lot more machines? Is that because we have trade? Is that because we're about to enter a recession? It's a cyclical phenomenon. I just, you know, the world's really, I think we, we're, we're many years away from fully understanding where we are. What I do know is that we don't have a very good education system. Right. I don't need the data. I don't need the um, trade data to tell me that. I can, I can see that from test scores. I can see it from the connection people have to education as, as high schoolers. Just not great. Um, and so I would like to see a little more competition there. Well, it seems like we almost have two education systems and that a lot of folks will point out that we have the greatest, uh, elite system of education in the world, but then there's that, that vast second layer of education where maybe we, we could do a lot better. Well, I think we could do a lot better all along, all up and down the, the spectrum. I think if you, um, if you go to high school, if you live, if you own a house, or live in a neighborhood uh, that's fairly wealthy, you get a pretty decent uh, public high school. If you live in a neighborhood that's poor, you get a pretty lousy public high school. And I think that's the tragedy. I think the public high schools in the poorest parts of America could be a lot better. But my guess is the public high schools, even in the wealthy parts, could be better. Uh, The difference really for me is that in the wealthy parts, the uh, parents have choices. They can afford to send their kids to private schools, so the public schools have to try harder. 
in the lousy neighborhoods where people are poor, they don't have to try so hard, so they don't. And um, the, those poor kids don't have much of an alternative. Uh, fortunately, there's some, you know, some charter schools and some actual truly private schools that are starting that I think give those kids a better chance. So, so you'd be in favor then, it sounds like, of, of uh, something like voucher programs and so forth to give these poor kids a, a chance, a choice at least? Well, a voucher is a good is a good intermediate step. I really would like to have the government out of the business of funding schooling altogether, but certainly out of the business of of teaching children. Uh, so people confuse the funding with the provision. You could have funding, that's the voucher system, of private schools. The government would give people vouchers to allow them to help cover the costs of, of tuition. Uh, or you, you could have neither. You could have no funding and just private schools and people who couldn't afford them would be eligible for privately donated scholarships, which I think schools would provide uh, because they'd want some diversity in their schools. And some people would just try to create great schools for poor kids because they want to help them, mm-hmm. which happens all over the world. Um, we have the worst of both worlds We in America. We have publicly funded schools. So the average parent, whether their kid goes to school or not, they have to pay the same amount in taxes, uh, either directly through their property taxes or indirectly through their rent. And then the employee is a government worker who basically can't be fired uh, even if they're mediocre. So it's um, that's a disaster. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the well, the current presidential race because, barring some really bizarre occurrence, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are going to be the nominees. And so I'm wondering, what do you think about their economic platforms? Does anything stand out as particularly good or particularly bad in your mind that they're calling for? Well, I don't really, you know. Th- in a way, platforms are kind of a waste of time because <laughs> they don't always keep them. And um, I, I'm not quite sure what Donald Trump's economics are. He has very little track record. Yeah. Um, he has threatened a trade war with China, which I think would be disastrous. Maybe that's just grandstanding. Maybe it's real. I've you know I just don't know. Right. Um, he doesn't have uh, a free market ideology. Uh, a lot of Republicans have a free market ideology, but then don't live by it. So, yeah. you know, I'm into office saying they're going to do all this great free market stuff, and then they don't actually do it. So, again, their platform's kind of not so helpful in figuring out what's going to happen. You know, I think I think Hillary's is a little more uh, knowable in that probably be something closer to the status quo. So I think uh, Trump has a higher variance. Sure. Uh, the fact that the stock market and other indicators have not jumped very much since uh, Trump has locked up the nomination suggests to me either that they have the markets think he can't win or the markets think he's going to be a much more status quo figure and policymaker than I'm assuming. So, again, it's sort of guessing at this point. Um, I think, unfortunately, if he does win and does get into a trade war with China, we'll get a uh, an economic experiment we won't be happy to see. But yeah. we'll, you know, who knows? Yeah, I know one thing uh, that. 
both Clinton and Trump share one policy view, which is a weird thing for me to say, is that they they both came out against the uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah. and I, I would guess that you you would you would argue that is a uh, that, that is a bad policy position to take. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read the TPP, so sometimes you know it's not. Uh, you know, again, I think Milton Friedman would, said something like this: If it really were a free trade agreement, you wouldn't have to read it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Free trade agreement, you say, "Well, we're not going to have any tariffs anymore. How about you?" Okay, great. We'll yeah. see you soon. Uh, but obviously, um, real real politics doesn't act that way. So the TPP will be a hundreds and hundreds of pages of how things will be phased in, and which things will be eligible, and which things will be exempted. Sure. And so, you know, I can't literally say I'm in favor of it. What I am in favor of is more open trade between the United States and and much of the world, all the world, almost all the world. Um, and I think when Trump and Clinton come out against that, it's, um, yeah, I think they're just trying to look like they care about yeah. people. Um, I think they actually, that doesn't actually help people sure. being against free trade, but uh, politically, certainly Hillary in, um, to, defend herself from the left against Bernie Sanders is going to, most of her career, she's been a standard free trader. Right. She, like was, her husband. she was even for TPP before she was yeah, against it. So, against yeah, it. exactly. So, you know, whether she'll actually fight against it, I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah, but for someone who believes in free markets and free trade, it, it seems to me that the choice that we're likely to face in November is, is not a very, we don't have a lot of good options. And so I, I'm wondering, is there, is there anyone that, that you would think would be a, would be a better option than what we're going to have to pick from here? Well, you know, there is a libertarian, Gary Johnson running. Mm-hmm. Um, I may change my mind in the next few months, but right now I, I'm, uh, I am planning on not voting for, uh, Hillary and not voting for uh, Donald. I'm, I'm. My slogan is never club. <laughs> not going to vote for Clinton or Trump. I yeah. don't think they're. Um, I don't think either of them are attractive options. And I know there's an argument as well, but you have to pick one. And the answer is no, I don't. One, I don't have to vote. Are you going to throw your vote away? Right. Well, my vote's not going to break a tie in the state of Maryland. Trust me. Yeah. So my vote doesn't count. Uh, literally, it, 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 in the sense, it's not decisive. So what does my vote mean? Well, it's a way of expressing my own views, number one. And number two, uh, it, it adds a tiny, 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 tiny amount to either the victory margin or the closes the gap in uh, narrows the, the loss uh, in, a, in the state that I live in. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be a wonderful thing if lots of people stayed home and didn't vote at all in this election and the two parties were confronted with the fact that they are unappealing to most Americans. Yeah. That's one option is not voting along those lines. The other is to vote for a third party candidate, whether it's Gary Johnson or someone where whatever floats your boat. Uh, it's true. They probably won't win. Almost certainly won't win, but you will have at least uh, been true to some, a principle or some idea that you hold. I do, um, I think it will be interesting to see if Gary Johnson can get on the debate stage. He has right. to get 15 percent, uh, at least by current rules. I don't know if they'll hold by those. There's certainly be pressure for them on both sides to either hold by them or not. But uh, it would be nice, I think, for Americans to be exposed to yeah. the idea that government should be smaller. You're not going to hear that from either of the mainstream candidates yeah. um, this year. Yeah. I think in some polls he's up to around 10 percent or so, yeah. but there's still – uh, Shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think he's at 10 percent because he's not 
his last name isn't Trump. Or Clinton, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, which, um, you know, I don't, that number could go down if he gets into the polls, right. into the debates. Yeah, yeah. But it, it could go up. And so I think that would be a really good thing and interesting and maybe put a little pressure on uh, the other two folks to have different uh, policies. Right. I know we're running a little short on time, so uh, one, one final question I wanted to ask you. I'm curious, uh, where do you go for news and opinion, or maybe even uh, what would you recommend in terms of, say, books for, for people who maybe want to pull away from some of the uh, you know, day-to-day sort of thing? I mean, aside from, obviously, your book and Adam Smith, any uh, recommendations or suggestions for people? Well, I have to say, with this election, it makes me really miss the 18th century where I lived for a while writing that book. Um, uh, I get most of my news on Twitter. I follow a bunch of economists, policymakers, uh, journalists on Twitter and uh, follow those. I'm, I'm not sure that's a good thing. I, I um, probably waste a lot of time on Twitter and I've recently uh, with this election found myself engaged with some really ugly um, types of insults and argument, uh, which uh, it's like a rock has been lifted up. It's really unattractive. It's depressing. Yeah. Um, it's a very, to me, a very incredibly depressing uh, time, um, both sides of the ideological fence for what we're dealing with here. So that's the reality. The person has to live with it. Uh, so I like Twitter a lot, though, for finding interesting things to read. So they're not all related to the news, obviously. It might be a, later, a study that's come out or a, interesting article, um, a memoir or anything. So um, I think it's an incredible time to be alive despite the depressing political reality we live in, which is incredible in the sense that despite all these claims about the great stagnation, I think there's some incredible products being created in the areas of health and in entertainment and in sports. And uh, in that sense, our, and in addition, our ability to access information around the world clever, creative, delightful, eloquent people. It's just, it's a feast. So Twitter's just the way I get uh, to the, up to the buffet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, there are other ways other people like Facebook or just, you know, surf the web in their own way. But um, for all my complaints about the political discourse of uh, June of 2016, the intellectual discourse is really just spectacular. You can learn about so many things from so many people in so many ways great time to be alive in that sense absolutely so where uh before i let you go where can people who are interested in learning more about you and and your work everything you do where where can they find you online so my twitter handle is econ talker econ talk with an er at the end uh my podcast is econ talk you can find it at econtalk.org or on itunes or soundcloud stitcher other places like that uh, I archive all my work at russroberts.info, so you can read essays I've written, stuff about my books. Um, you can re- listen to commentaries I've done, watch videos of me speaking, way too much of me there. So uh, that's probably the, the easiest place to get started. Okay, great. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time for uh, coming in and talking to me today. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it myself. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.